this morning we're continuing our series that we're calling Ignite as we look at the seven letters to the churches uh, found in the book of Revelation. Uh, This morning's lesson is going to somewhat be two parts. We'll look at Revelation this morning. We'll look at Ahab next week and hopefully by the end of next week you'll figure out how Revelation 2 and Ahab go together. But we'll look at that and uh, see the connection that, that we can make there. As we begin, I'd like to ask you, have you seen this uh, symbol before called coexist? That's how those symbols kind of play out. Uh, Coexist. It's becoming fairly popular, bumper stickers and things like that. And each of the symbols on there represent a different religion or a different belief pattern. I I was able to find one that had some interpretation of all those things. Uh, The first one with the crescent moon, the sea of coexist, uh, representing the faith of Islam. Then, of course, the the peace symbol. We've seen that for quite a while now. Uh, The E, then the lowercase e, being a composite of male and female, uh, trying to, I guess, suggest no differences between male and female, also perhaps having some uh, sexual undertones as well about what that's trying to push. Uh, the X is the Star of David, representing Judaism. Uh, the I is fascinating, and I'll get on the other screen in just a minute where you might be able to see the I a little bit better, but the dot in the I is actually a pentagram uh, in that, and so that's representing wicked and pagan and all sorts of uh, various other religions as well. Uh, the S represents the various uh, Asian religions from Buddha and Confucianism as it's the yin and the yang uh, symbol. And then the T is a cross for Christianity. Now, if all that coexist meant was we all ought to stop killing each other on the planet. I would be all for that. We really shouldn't kill each other over our different beliefs absolutely positively. Uh, but that's not what this symbolizes. In fact, on the Coexist Foundation website on the very homepage uh, was one of the statements here that says, God has given us many faiths, but only one world in which to coexist. And you may be surprised as I was that that was actually a a, a chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations that said that. And I was like, I don't think you know the Old Testament as well as you think you do to say something like that. Uh, This is something that is not uncommon historically either. The idea that it doesn't matter what everybody teaches, we just need to accept it. Uh, We all just need to identify with the fact that we all have different beliefs, we all have different values, we all have different faiths, and we're all going to teach different things, and that's okay. Because God has given us all sorts of different ways to approach Him. God has given us all of these different paths, and isn't it great that we can have all of these different teachings and all these different beliefs, and God is still with us and He's still on board with us. You'll notice in the reading that we had in Revelation chapter 2 that this is very similar to the things that were being taught 
in the church there at Pergamum. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of background about what Pergamum was doing there and the kind of city that it was like. And one of the things that you'll observe is that the cities were fairly similar. And again, one of the reasons that we are reading these letters being given to these churches and why the book of Revelation is written to the seven churches of Asia is because of not only the pagan problem and the idolatry, but the emperor worship that was going on as these were central places for that kind of worship and those kinds of activities. Pergamum was a very important city, particularly particularly for pagan religion as well as for the imperial cult in worshiping the emperor. Staggeringly, uh, a, a fairly large city. It was the center of four pagan cults. It also had boasted in education because it had a 200,000 volume library, which especially in that day, that's quite impressive. Uh, and so they were the learned and they were the educated, kind of like the society that we have today that we know it all and so that's why we have all the things that we have today in our belief system. Uh, Pergamum was also the first city in the province of Asia to build a temple to a Roman emperor and it was to Augustus and Pergamum was considered the capital of this province for emperor worship. And so that's going to color why we read the words of what Jesus says because This is a congregation of Christians that are tempted to coexist with error. They are tempted to coexist with these false religions and to coexist with this emperor worship. And I don't think it's by any accident that of all of the descriptions that Jesus could give of Himself as He begins to speak this letter and give this letter to this church, but to describe Himself as the one who has the sword, this two-edged sword, coming out of His mouth. That's a common picture throughout the Scriptures, like in Hebrews chapter 4, a picture of the powerful Word of God. And so it is fascinating that the Word of God is not described as there is a feather coming out of His mouth or as a giant cushy pillow that everybody could relax and lean on and have a good old time of comfort. It's described as a sword. This is a picture of the Word of God that the message that Christ is going to give to them is powerful. And with the picture of a sword, it's going to do damage. And we're going to talk about the damage that the sword causes in just a minute. But it symbolizes the powerful Word of God. Notice what Jesus then does in His description as He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I want you just to to imagine that for a moment. Uh, We may think that we live in, in quite evil times and things are very difficult, lots of sin, lots of wickedness. Certainly people who are standing against the Word of God and standing against God's truth. But I want you to consider, to hear the words of Jesus to say, now I want you to know that I know where you live. You live where Satan lives. You live in the very heart of wickedness. You live in the very depths of where evil is. So that I could say that even Satan himself is there. And the picture is likely because this was one of the centers of pagan worship. As we mentioned in the very beginning, 
Four cults were centered there. Four pagan cults were centered in this very city. And so here is Jesus saying, I know the evil that's going on. I know the paganism that is going on there and continuing. Look at verse 13 in the middle. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny the faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Can you imagine, and it's not one thing that we would want to imagine, but can you imagine finding out that one of your brothers or sisters in Christ here was executed because of their faith in Jesus, because of where you lived? Can you imagine coming together that Sunday, finding out, yep, Brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so gave their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And that's what Jesus puts His finger on and says, I know what's going on there. I know that you're living where Satan lives. I know the pagan worship. I know the idolatry. I know the emperor worship that goes there. In fact, I'm even aware of one of your own. I am aware of Antipas the faithful witness who died during those days. And the encouraging words that he says in verse 13, but even in the face of that, you did not deny the faith. You did not let go of what you know to be true. He says there, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny the faith. Can you imagine how easy it would be to want to preserve your own life when you saw that one of your own friends, one who was sitting in the very room, has died for the faith? Would you still hold fast? Would you still hold on no matter what? As I read the verse, I would think, surely Jesus would not have anything negative to say to this church. You have a martyr, and you have everybody else still holding strong, even in the face of the one who has died for their faith. You would think that you would step back and go, now this church is going to be like the church we read last week, like Smyrna, that there's not going to be anything negative. They're doing great, right? They're they're holding fast to the faith. They're not denying Jesus, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of their very lives. And yet that's the only good news that this church gets, is that, well, I know you're holding fast but I have a few things against you. Notice verse 14. And he says there, You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You have a problem in that congregation. And it appears that the problem is not that they are denying Jesus. No, they are accepting Him. They believe in Him. They are holding fast to His name. The problem is they're accepting all the other teachings that are coming in as well. This is the problem that lies for the church at Pergamum. They are accepting whatever these false teachers have to come along and say within their own assembly. And there's a number of different teachings. In verse 15, there's some there who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In verse 13, he said, or verse 14, he says, there's some there who are holding fast to this teaching of Balaam. 
first thing we have to ask is, well, what is the teaching of Balaam? What, is, what does that look like? And I don't think that there was some guy named Balaam there in that day. and that's He was running around teaching something. But that this has a reference to a situation that happened in the Old Testament. And I'll summarize it for you because the story passes over a few chapters from Numbers 25 on into Numbers chapter 30. We read about a man named Balaam. And what he was is that he was a prophet of God. He was a prophet of God for the nation of Israel. What you have in the days of the book of Numbers is that the nation of Israel, they've left the land of Egypt, they've come out of slavery, they were led by Moses, and they're moving their way to Canaan to conquer the promised land. On that path, there is a country named Moab, and the king of Moab is named Balak. And that's his name there as you see in verse 14. Balak is the king of Moab. He says we need to do something against the nation of Israel because they're wiping out everybody along the way. And so the king of Moab has a great idea. He says, you know what I'll do? I will hire one of these prophets and get them to pronounce curses against Israel so they will not be successful. And so the king of Moab, his name's Balak, he then calls for Balaam, the prophet of God, and says, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to pay you a great sum of money and I want you to pronounce these curses. And Balaam agrees. And so he opens his mouth to pronounce the curses against Israel. And you know what happens? Out comes blessings. And of course, Balak is enraged. I didn't pay you to do that. I paid you to pronounce curses. And Balaam has tried to pronounce curses, but blessings come out. Balaam tries a second time. Blessings come out again. Balaam tries a third time, and blessings continue to come out. And Balaam basically says, I can only say the word of the Lord. It gives us a picture of how the prophet system worked, that this was God's very words coming out of his mouth. And he couldn't pronounce curses, even though he wanted to. And so Balak is enraged. He wants this nation to be cursed. He wants them to lose in these battles. He doesn't want them to be victorious against Moab or Canaan. And so Balaam has an idea. And Balaam's idea is this. Since I can't pronounce curses against the nation, here's what you should do. We should get the men of Israel to be lured away sexually with Moabite women. Get them to love the Moabite women and to marry them, and then their hearts will be turned away from God. And Balaam's plan worked. We read about that in Numbers chapter 30. And so here is this prophet of God, and yet he's doing everything he can to try to cause the stumbling of his own people, of his very nation. That is what we see going on in verse 14. There are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What does he mean by that? Well, he's using that illustration and bringing it into the church in Pergamum because what are they doing? The teaching that they can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Remember that Paul taught in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Three whole chapters saying, do not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Absolutely do not do it. And here are some in this church saying, no, it's okay. It's alright. You know, we've got all these pagan cults. we got all this idolatry in this city. What else are you going to do? you got to go ahead and have it. It's okay. 
And so there were Christians within the congregation saying to eat the meats that were explicitly condemned in the Scriptures. And not only that, notice in verse 14, and to practice sexual immorality. You have some teaching, sexual immorality, that's okay. It's alright. You know, got to be happy. Do what you want to do. It's okay. And so there's that teaching going on. And so he uses this idea of Balaam and saying, here are people who claim to be the people of God. They seem to be the teachers of God, just like Balaam seems to be a prophet of God, and yet he's teaching something that is false. He's teaching something that is contrary to the Scriptures. And the same thing is happening in this, in this church. There are people who seem to be Christian teachers, but what they are saying violates the very Word of God. And God's very angry about that. And Christ is sitting here saying, I've got a problem with you. You are tolerating these teachings. And the first point I want to make in terms of our study and igniting ourselves and getting ourselves zealous and on fire for God is to consider that this happens all the time. It is a warning that is given throughout the Scriptures that the people that we spend time with we become like. That's what Balaam realizes when he says, you know what we need to do? Get them to marry the foreign women. Why did God give that law in the Old Testament for the Israelites not to marry the foreigners? Because the foreigners were idol worshippers. And the spouse wants to please the spouse. And if you marry someone who's engaged in idolatry, you don't want to tell them, no, that's wrong. They like their idols. They want to worship their gods. And so you will begin to accept it. And you will approve of it. And you will tolerate it. And that is still true today for us that the people that we spend time with, they will either cause us to lose our zeal for God or they will cause us to increase our fervor for God. The people that we spend time with, they're either a positive effect in our Christianity or they are a negative effect. And we often don't realize that that is really the relationship that we have in terms of our spouses, in terms of our friends, in terms of co-workers and neighbors. All of our acquaintances, either they are going to help you in your walk with God or they are going to strip you away from God. They are going to drain the fire out of you. And we have to be very careful who we are spending our time with because we will adopt that same condition that they have. If our closest friends don't care about God in the slightest, that will rub off on you. And you won't be on fire for God anymore and you'll be very ho-hum. And if your spouse is not interested in following God and serving God with zeal, you will begin to do the same. And we have to be very careful about letting the influences of those who are close to us begin to pull us away from God. And why God gave so many warnings watching out for, look, watch what people can do to you. And the thing that I would like for us to observe and what is happening here in this church and is very real of a problem today is that the zeal of each other is also contagious here. If all of us come in here 
and we act like we do not care about God. It's just another checklist thing we've got to do. You know, four songs, four songs, uh, a prayer, Lord's Supper, have a song, 30 minutes, long-winded guy. All right, done. That's all that matters. Just got to get it out of the way, get it done. You're going to lose your fire. You're not going to care. This is going to turn into ritual. It's just going to turn into pew-sitting. It's not going to turn into true, heartfelt worship to God. And we have to be careful that we do not enter into worship with a very lazy, heart-not-engaged kind of attitude and disposition. As if this is just kind of whatever. we just got to get it out of the way. Let's just get through it. Let's hurry up and just be done with it. That is contagious. If we all act bored toward Christ, then we're going to have other people act the same way. That's going to rub off on each other. If we act on fire and excited and we enjoy the Scriptures and we enjoy serving, we find excitement in worshiping God and we love singing and we love praying, that is also contagious. And that's true about anything in our lives. It's amazing on TV how the most mundane things can sound so exciting. I I am a sucker for the as-seen-on-TV things. I've never bought one, but I always think about it. (laughs) Those things, I was like, wow! In three minutes, they have just solved all of my life problems. You can stick a lamp on the side of a wall and click it. That is really cool. That's amazing. All sorts of neat things that you can do. And for... 30 seconds or 3 minutes, they can make something as ridiculous as tape on a light sticking on a wall the most exciting thing in your life. And it works because they wouldn't be on TV if it wasn't selling millions upon millions. Your enthusiasm, your excitement, rubs off on other people. And if I come up here and act bored toward the Bible then you will be bored toward the Bible. And if you are unmoved by singing and don't care about worship, nobody else is either. And you see that all the time. It's not about being able to hit the notes. It's not about being able to sing it just right. It's just about being able to sing it loud and proud and being grateful for what God has done and wanting to express that. Our zeal is contagious. If we truly love God, then we will catch one another on fire. And our relationships are so important in that picture. And so I think that's the first thing that we observe here and what we are learning about the situation here is they are tolerating. They're tolerating these sins and they're tolerating these teachings. And they says they should not be able to do that. You cannot be accepting, verse 14, the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We cannot accept those things. We are in a society today that is telling us, especially with that thing that I showed you earlier that coexists, that what we must do as Christians is we must accept all beliefs. We must accept all teachings. And somehow it would be unchristian of us if we did not accept other people's beliefs and accept all of their teachings. Well, you haven't read the Scriptures well. Because Jesus says, I have something 
clearly against you. You are accepting the teachings and they're not the teachings of people on the outside. They're Christians within their own congregation. They are teaching things that are false. And Christ says, I have a very big problem with what's going on there. We cannot accept all teachings. We cannot accept all beliefs. There must be the realization that God's Word says something. It must say something. If it says something, then there must be a yes and a no to it. There isn't just simply, you know, this would be a very small Bible. It just said, you know, believe what you want to believe. All right. Good. This is a really big book of beliefs. Either you believe what it says and do what it says, or you don't. There's no in-between. There's no teach what you want to teach. It's okay. I missed that one. This would be a lot smaller book. It wouldn't be so heavy. We just teach what you want to teach. Believe what you want to believe. It's not here. That's what Christ is telling this church. What are you doing? You can't accept these other teachings. I know it's popular. I know it will help you get along in the world. You've got all that paganism and idolatry. I know it will make it easy for you if you just accept it. But you can't. But you can't. What He's telling them is you cannot compromise the Word of God. You cannot change it. You cannot compromise it. You cannot alter it. It says what it says. And you must do it. And you cannot teach something contrary to it and expect that you're going to be still a person of God. We have a a problem because I think this is always going to be the case. Is that there are always going to be teachers advocating to do things that are sinful. That's always going to happen. That's happened all the ways in the day, all the way in the back in the days of Balaam, over three thousand years ago. Here's a person claiming to be a person of God, teaching things that are completely simple. It's always going to be that way. That's always going on. And so it reminds us that we have to be careful. It reminds us that all of us have a responsibility to be dedicated to the Word of God. To know what it says and to not be swept away by teachings that are false. People are going to arise who are Christians who you revere and respect and love and they will teach you things that are not in the Bible. I'm sure you've experienced that if you've been in the worship services long enough. I mean, there's a lot of things I grew up as a kid learning that I went, that wasn't right. There's all sort of, I could do a whole sermon series on things that are not in the Bible that you were taught are in the Bible. Like God only helps those who help themselves. Well, I missed that one. That's <laughs> not in the Bible. Interesting. And we have all sorts of teachings that we can be taught that are not in the Bible. We get things mixed up with Star Wars and added in and taken out. So what's going on with this? It's a whole hybrid. Well, you got to know what the Word of God says. We need to know what the Scriptures teach and understand that there will be some who do not teach the truth. And we need to worship then only in a place where the Word of God is honored and revered. The other very popular phrase is Worship in the church of your choice. Go wherever makes you happy. Go wherever sounds good to you. If you like the music there, go there for the music. If you, if you like what they're doing with the children's classes, you go there for that. If you like the extracurriculars that are going on, you go there for that. You know, Find the church that makes you happy. Here's Christ saying, 
find the church where the Word of God is revered and honored. Because it's not about you, it's about Christ. It's about honoring and worshiping Him. It's not about all what you're going to get out of it. And do we get to have ping pong after services? And do we get to do this and work in the Super Bowl? You know, No. It's about the Word of God. And I want us to consider for our second point of Ignite is that we quickly lose our fire when we fall into this way of thinking that every teaching and every belief is okay. And the reason why is, well, if your teaching's okay, and your teaching's okay, and your teaching's okay, and their teachings are okay, and my teaching's okay, then why teach? We're all okay. Hey, we're all good, right? We're all in the same boat. Hey, just you know, isn't it? Let's go back to the quotation. Isn't it great that God's given us so many faiths? Well, there's nobody to teach then, because we've all got these great beliefs, and we all do whatever we want, and God's going to accept us that way. We lose our fire for evangelism. We lose our fervor of reaching to the lost when we have in mind that, well, my friend or my neighbor or co-worker, they're okay because of... No, they're not okay. The situation they're in is a situation of being lost according to the words of God. If they're not in obedience to what God has said and they are not accepting Jesus as their Lord and following the words of God that are found in this book, they're not okay. And it doesn't matter how good they are, how nice they are, how they're not a criminal, they don't kill people, oh, they're just the sweetest things on earth. It doesn't matter. And we lose a lot of our fire, I think when we adopt this attitude in the world that says, well, everybody's okay. We're all just fine. And we all just need to be tolerant. And they don't need to hear our teachings. So, you know, I don't want to impose my views. Christ imposed His views. He did it in the most imposing way. He said, follow me or you're going to eternal punishment. That, that doesn't leave a lot of space for do what you want to do. And then his apostles came along and they did the very same things and taught the very same thing. And that's why Jesus was killed and almost all the apostles were killed. Because the message that Christ teaches is not one of, I'm okay, you're okay. It's not. It teaches us that we're all not okay. And that we all need Christ. Look at verse 16. Here is Christ's solution to their problem. They're accepting all of these teachings. They're saying everybody's okay. It's fine. Come on in. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. Stop this way of thinking. You have to change your outlook. We are being so molded by the world that tells us this way of life is okay. And we have TV shows to promote. This way of life is okay. And we've got news and radio that tells us just relax and be tolerant. It's okay. Jesus says it's not okay. Repent. Stop this way of thinking. Stop thinking that all the teachings out there are all equal. They're not. Only one way is truth. There only can be. Everything else is false to that truth. And I want you to notice what what he tells us there in verse 16 when he says, If not, and repent, if not, 
I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I want you to catch the words that he uses here because it's really interesting that what he says there. And he first he says, I'm going to use the, the sword of my mouth. He used that earlier in verse 12. He's going to use his powerful words, but notice how he's going to do this. He Notice the you and the we's that are going on here in verse 16. I will come to you and war against them. Catch that? It's not I'm going to come to you and war against you, or I'm going to come to them and war against them. It's I'm going to come to you and war against them. What's he telling them? Well, remember it was some of them, and back in verse 14, some of them were holding to the teachings of Balaam. Some of them, verse 15, are holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I think he's writing to the you, the you who have not succumbed to those teachings and saying, I'm going to come to you and war against them if you don't do something about it. You need to do something about it. You cannot just let them continue teaching sexual immorality and meat sacrifice to idols. You cannot let them continue teaching. If you don't use my words, the Word of God, against them, He says, I will come and I will use my words against them. You have a choice. Either you use the Word of God and use it properly to discern what is right and wrong, what is true and false, or Christ says, I'll come and do it. And you'd rather we do it. You'd rather we do it. You'd rather us look at the Word of God and change our lives before it's too late than when Christ comes in judgment and says, that was false. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity. We don't want that. I want us just to see again why Christ's Word is depicted as a sword. It's depicted as a sword because it cuts. It hurts. It hurts to be told that what we are doing is wrong. It's painful to have the sword go into our hearts and say, what I believe is false. What I am teaching is wrong. The way that I was brought up is not matching the Scriptures and it's wrong. None of us like to be wrong. I don't think any of us raise our hands and go, it would be great, be great to be wrong today. You know, it just, you know, I want to be wrong. No. We like to think that we are so 100% right. And Christ's words are described as a sword intended to cut into the very depths of our soul. But I want us to consider that that doesn't mean being ugly. That doesn't mean being rude. That Christ does this in an extremely loving way. That He is being gracious with the sword. He is doing this because He doesn't want any of us to be lost. The reason He does this is not to be mean-spirited or ugly toward us. Of Boy, I really hate those guys. I'm going to tell them they're wrong. Make them feel real bad. He uses the sword to save us before it's too late. It hurts. But when we let the Word of God penetrate into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds... Christ is doing that so that we can be in a relationship with Him. It's one of the things that we're consciously seeing throughout this picture in these letters is either repent and come to Christ or you're in separation from Him. 
do what He says before it is too late. He's trying to purify us. He's trying to get us on the right path. And the same thing with the teachings that come from here. I am not trying to be ugly to you. I'm not trying to be rude. We just say what the Scriptures say because we don't want you to be lost. We don't want you to walk away and then not know what the Bible has to say. There are plenty of places on this planet that you can go that will tell you what you're doing right now is fine and good. Stay what you're doing. Be comfortable. Be happy. You're good to go. Pat on the back. You're fine. That's not going to work out well for you on the Day of Judgment. We need to know now what God wants us to do before it's too late. We need to hear now what God has to say before it's too late. And that's why Jesus gives the warning here. and He says, if you will not repent, then I will come to you and I will war with you with the sword in my mouth. Very quickly, verse 17. It would be fun to just let that go by since there's two images that are quite difficult, but I'll go ahead and go through them for you very quickly. Verse 17, to the conquerors. He says, listen, I want you to hear this. Here's what happens to the conquerors. Two things that I'm going to give to the conquerors. One, hidden manna. You all know that one. Let's go to the next. Now, uh, well, hidden manna, what are we talking about here? Uh, this likely is referring to what was hidden within the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant, you had the tablets of stone, you had Aaron's rod that budded, and you also had a pot of manna. And the manna in the Ark of the Covenant was a reminder and a representation of how God had been so caring for them and providing for them and faithful to His covenant with them when they've gone through the wilderness. That God had been there and provided for them and kept His word and was faithful to His covenant. And I think that's the picture that's being told here. To those who conquer, to those who overcome, God is going to be gracious. God keeps His word. He keeps His covenant. And you are in a relationship with Him and you do have home with Christ. And you do have the hope of eternal life. And you do have the blessings of Christ. Those things are yours if you conquer and you stand with Christ. The second one is even harder. In verse 17, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows. No one knows the name on the stone. That's me too. I don't know. (laughs) If anybody knew, then we'd know. Then we wouldn't be able to say that nobody knows what's on the stone. But there's an interesting picture. White, typically the white stone was used frequently in those days as a picture of being not guilty, a projection of innocence. What's challenging about the imagery is that there's a name written on it, and that was not what was done. Usually just the white stone, and that's it. So there may be a hybrid imagery that's being given here of the white stone depicting innocence, depicting purity and holiness and acquittal. But then also the stone that has a name on it, often in those days, that was done in competitions. That the one who was victorious would be given a stone, and there was their name on that stone, and that allowed them entrance into the victor's feast, the winner's circle. And I think there's probably a combination of the two being described there. To those who overcome you will be allowed into the feast with Christ. You will be the one who is victorious. You are pronounced innocent before God. And you will be joined with Him. That's somewhat of a similarity to a trophy. We engrave the name on the the trophy. You are victorious. You are definitely with Christ. And there you will be forever with Him. 
I sincerely pray this morning that you will think about where you stand before God. Because we are in a world that is just telling you, accept everything, tolerate everything, let's all just coexist in all of our beliefs and values and teachings. It's all okay. The church of Pergamum tried that path. And Christ comes to them forcefully and says, oh no, don't go down that road. Do not think that's the case. Christ has taught that it is only through Him that there is salvation. That only He is the way to life. Only He is the way to forgiveness of sins. And there is no other. And we must follow what He says and obey His teachings. And we beg you to do the same this very morning. We're going to sing a song. And when we sing the song, what we are doing is we are inviting you to choose to follow Jesus with all of your heart. We are begging you to turn away from your sins and to follow Him. To realize that we need forgiveness. That we haven't done everything that God has commanded of us. And we are so grateful for His mercy. And so grateful for the grace that He's bestowed upon us. That we respond to Him in obedience. That we want to follow Him. Turn away from your sin. Confess Jesus is the Lord. Be immersed in water to have your sins washed away. And start a relationship with Him. The water is ready. All the preparations are made. All that's needed is for you to decide today. I'll follow Jesus with all of my heart. I need to be baptized. You can let me know after services or you can come forward right now while we stand and sing this song.